Performance requires the hard work of actually diverse, divergent perspectives being brought to the table. And there are real consequences of not doing that. Hi everyone, this is Tim Clark. Welcome to Culture by Design. I have with me today, Nelson Derry, coming to us from London, who's going to be our esteemed guest. And uh, Nelson, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Very grateful to have you here on this episode. Oh, Tim, thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge fan of your work. So really, really looking forward to getting into this conversation. Let me uh, give a little bio of Nelson. He currently serves as the global head of culture, diversity, equity, and inclusion at ESOP. He is responsible for driving a company-wide strategy around ESOP's people commitments, including diversity, equity, and inclusion, culture transformation, engagement, and well-being. Prior to joining ESOP, Nelson led the global organizational culture practice at North Highland, serving as a trusted advisor to senior leaders and supporting them with their people transformation agendas, including culture and behavior change, communications and engagement, leadership development, and diversity and inclusion. Previous to that, he spent a decade, I didn't know this, Nelson, a decade <laughs> at Goldman Sachs in a variety of leadership roles, including head of strategy and change within the European asset management business, as well as leading several operations teams. Were you in London at that time? Yeah, based in London. I, I, Tim, I call my time at Goldman Sachs my MBA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was my graduation into, uh, into the big wide world. <laughs> what an amazing background. Nelson is an award-winning executive. He's been recognized by the Financial Times and EM Power as one of the top 30 UK and US future leaders for contributions to workplace inclusion. And I have had the privilege of working with Nelson in that area, which has been a, a great learning experience for me. And I hope a great collaboration, Nelson, I hope so. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, Tim. Very rich experience. Nelson is the author of Rise of the 2020 Leader, Entering a New Era of Trust, Purpose, and Inclusion. His thought leadership and articles have been featured on publications, including Manage HR Magazine. He is also a regular speaker and storyteller at company events and industry conferences on the topics of high-performing teams, organizational culture, leadership, and diversity and inclusion. And most recently, he was invited to deliver the keynote address at the Diversity and Inclusion Workplace Summit hosted by Business Forums International. So Nelson, that's quite an incredible background. Pretty, pretty amazing. But you know what's the most fascinating to me, and I'm excited to learn more because you and I have talked just briefly about this, but your backstory, your origin story is, you've touched on it a little bit before in conversation, but with you, I want to go all the way back. I want to go yeah. all the way back. Tell us where you came from. Tell us about your life story. Yeah. Let's, let's start with that. Absolutely. Thank you. And, and thanks again, Tim, for having me. Uh, it's such an honor. So yeah, look, 
my life started in Nairobi, Kenya, in Africa. I was born and raised there by an incredibly inspiring woman, a, a resilient woman, and she happened to be my mum. And she raised my my younger brother and I on her own. And let's just say, Tim, you know, one of the most humble parts of of Nairobi. We were we were literally staying in a room which is not much bigger than the room that I'm in. And, and I'm vividly going back right now, where we had our bathroom in in the corner bed in the other corner and some facilities on the left with the the kitchen tops and so forth and so it was was a pretty small tight joint with three of us wow and but you know one of the things that I'd just say is um, what we I guess lacked in some of those material things was significantly overcome by the lessons and the values that I you know that we both got from our mum so I wanted to take you to the age of six years old. So my mm. mom and, and my dad divorce, and she gets a little bit of divorce proceeds. And she makes a decision to use all of that money to fund a vision, which was the way that we're going to change our lives is if we invest in education and invest in my kids' education. So um, the decision my mom made was to use all of the proceeds to send me to my first fee-paying school, so a private school, but she only had enough money for the first year. No kidding. <laughs> that was it. That was it. She uh, All in, right? She did not oh, have a Scooby-Doo, man. how we were going to get the money for the second year, let alone the third year. And you can just imagine the scene, Tim. Um, all of her friends were, Mary, are you crazy? This is reckless. But, you know, in her mind... She was very focused on this vision. And you're how old? So I'm six years old. You're at six. This point. Yeah. So pretty young, right? So she does a little bit of research with, with some friends and finds this really fantastic school. And uh, she sits me down probably at two to three days before, <laughs> before I start. And she says, you know, Nelson, I wanted to let you know some exciting news. You're going to be going to this new school. But I just wanted to I want to let you know a few things about this school. The first thing is you're going to walk 45 minutes to an hour to the school, um, 45 minutes to an hour back. A by lot yourself? Of but, just uh, walking oh, with, on foot? Yeah, no, no. Uh, yeah, I'm <laughs> not by myself, with my mom or with my uh, uncle at the time. Got it. Okay. But your friends are probably going to have really nice cars driving them there and driving them back. Uh, maybe their parents are driving it or chauffeurs are driving them. You might get to visit your friends' houses and they'll have beautiful houses. They, they'll they may have gone on really lovely holidays. And you <laughs> was thinking to myself, what a way to get me motivated for my first day at school. So just trying to prepare you for culture shock. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely she was. That's exactly right. Because she said something which has always stuck with me. She said, but I want you to remember this. I want you to remember, Nelson, that your difference is and always will be your greatest strength. Right? Which... As a six-year-old, I think it sort of went past me, but was sort of stuck subconsciously in my brain. And I was like, just get me to get me to school. But it's really interesting because a lot of you know what my mum encouraged me to do was the things that I loved. And the things that I loved was sports. Absolutely loved sports. Um, I loved music. I loved drama. So effectively, Tim, anything that was to do with being outside of the classroom was me. Yeah. <laughs> anything at all. Yeah, I said, as long as you're putting in the effort, you know, I want you to go and do these things. May I ask you a question, mm. though? Mm. So here she is. She's a single mom. You're in Nairobi, Kenya. You're living in a very humble one-room space. 
with your little brother. She gets some proceeds from the divorce proceedings and she has this vision to invest it in your early childhood education. Where did that come from? Where did that commitment and vision come from? Yeah, my mom growing up was an entrepreneur. She was a big thinker and she was also someone, she she told me a story where um, she used to run to school. So she was really into athletics and really understood the equalizing power of sports. Because if you think about it, Tim, right, um, irrespective of your background, when you're on the field, it's fair game. That's so true. Yeah. And she got that. She got the equalizing power of sports. Mm -hmm. And you know what? She made a big bet, but the bet paid off in, in a couple of ways. The first way the bet paid off was after about nine or 10 months of me into my school, they knew about my financial situation, but they saw something different in me to the other kids. And so they decided, the school decided to give me a full bursary. So effectively, Uh. all of the financial issues went away, right? And um, that, that, A, that was incredible. um, And it allowed me to spend a number of years until the age of 13 in an incredibly privileged position, right? I was in a very good school with all of the opportunities to allow me to pursue my passions around sports and music and so forth. But one thing that I would say is I was very lucky to have, I remember a particular sports teacher who, you know, we couldn't afford to go to piano lessons. So what I'd do is I'd come really early before school started and he would open up the, um, the music room for me and I'd teach myself how to play the piano. Or at the end of the day, he would open up the sports arena so that I could go and continue playing sports and he would play with me. So he was probably my first mentor, someone who saw something in me and and really unlocked those opportunities um, for me. But, you know, fast forward to the age of 13 and um, it's that sort of time, right, in your life where you're thinking about secondary school. And so we're in this whole predicament again of it's like this movie is playing out again. How are we going to afford to send Nelson to secondary school? And I just happened to be playing cricket one day against a rival school. Um, We were the top two schools in the state. And I played, I don't know how much you follow of cricket, Tim. Um, I think a little bit. Well, as you go through this, Nelson, you're going to have to translate for our (laughs) American listeners. Absolutely. Because we we, we don't understand the rules that well. Yeah. It's absolutely fascinating sport. Absolutely. It really is. The, the, the way that I would liken it is to baseball. Very, very similar in that you have a bowler, you have a batter, and you've got fields people. And the purpose of this game is to score the most runs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, look, I was playing this game and I had a pretty, I had a good day at the office, but I wouldn't say it was extraordinary. I took three wickets, which was okay. You know, there's 11 players. I got three, three of their team out. And I scored something like 20 to 25 runs. I was definitely not the best player, but I was one of the better players that day. Anyway, um, after the game, this parent comes over to me. And you're how old? I I was 13. 13. I was 13 at the time. Yeah. And so this parent comes over to me, this gentleman, and um, he happens to be the dad of one of the boys that I was playing against. He comes over to me and says, um, yeah, introduces himself and says, my name's Dickie. Um, I'm his father. And I thought you played a really good game. And we had a little bit of a chat. Nothing unusual. That is the kind of thing that would happen after most, <laughs> most games after school. 
And so I didn't really think much of it. But the next day, the coach that I was, I was talking to you about, he he calls me into his office. And I'm thinking, oh, gosh, Tim, what, are, <laughs> what on earth have I done? What have I, you know, what have I said? Or, you know, what, what trouble have I got myself into? Um, but he says, um, so, Nelson, you know that guy that you were speaking to yesterday? And he reminded me of, of who he was. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, him. Yeah, his, his parent, his dad. And he's like, yeah, well, he just also happens to be one of the wealthiest people in Kenya. And we were talking yesterday a little bit about you. And he has made the decision that he wants to invest in you and pay for you to continue your studies in the UK. Incredible. So let me just set the scene. This was a complete stranger, right? I did not know him. He did not know me. He did not know my school or my coach, but his gift completely changed the trajectory of my life, completely changed the trajectory of my life. And that's what brought me over to the UK. And, you know, I, I, I reflect back on those 13 years and, um, you know, it wasn't easy, right? Because when I think about the other students, I was definitely one of the poorer, if not the poorest students um, in school. I was the only black mixed race individual and, you know, I had many of those kind of challenges. But one of the things that I would say is that I had people who really leaned in. And, you know, in my mind, we would probably call them inclusive leaders, right, who really understood the power of difference and understood the power of strengths and what you can bring to the table and potential and just completely changed my life completely, completely changed my life. And I don't think I'd be sitting here with you if it wasn't for my mom, for my coach, and for my investor. Um, so that's a little bit about me. It's so interesting, Nelson, because it does show us you're a living witness that one interaction can change a life. Yeah. And I think that that's a lesson that we all need to ponder, that we all need to reflect on. Because as we go through the course of a given day, a single day, we have interactions and often they're brief and they may be planned, they may be unplanned, they may be chance interactions, but we have interactions and that's kind of what we do is we go from interaction to interaction in the course of a day and we tend not to think much of it. Oh, okay. Mm. I'm talking with so-and-so or I'm in a meeting or we're doing this or that and it's normal. It's just the course of a normal day, no big deal. And yet it can be. And we often don't understand the impact mm. right now for you, you had some profoundly important single interactions that changed the trajectory of your life. But I think it's safe to assume that that very important life-changing interactions happen every day in the workplace with people. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And, and you know, Tim, uh, something that I really learned from my mom and from my role models growing up was this value of, of showing up, this value of courage, and also this value of humility. And I would say that my life has absolutely been full of many interactions, but the way I try to show up has been quite consistent. I don't always get it right. Let's talk about that. What do you mean by that? Let's break that down a little bit more. Mm. What have you learned about how to do that in a meaningful way versus perhaps going through the motions 
Like, what has that come to mean to you? Yeah. For me, it has come to mean that I check myself and I try my very best to bring the full present Nelson to anyone that I'm speaking to, irrespective of who you are, irrespective of your level, irrespective of your superiority or perceived superiority. Because at the end of the day, we're all human beings. And I've learned that because I know where I came from, right? And so I, I, I try, I, tr- I think it's ingrained in me, but I'm also very conscious of it because it's easy to forget when great things start to happen in your life and great things start to happen in your career, to forget the essence of who you are. And I think a big aspect of that is who you surround yourself with. If you surround with people with shared values that keep you grounded, you become conditioned by the environment and the five to eight people that you spend the most time with. And so I'm I'm really intentional about who I give my energy to because I want to surround myself with people that are going to serve the purpose of me being the best of who I can be, which means, you know, really trying to treat people in the way that I would want to be treated, Mm -hmm. but also recognizing I'm a human being and I get it. (laughs) I get it wrong, um, you know, and, but then my, my, my family and my friends will call me out on it, right? And I'm good with that because that's the kind of people that I want to be surrounded with. So mm-hmm. I, I'd say it's, it's yeah, it's, it's the consistency in the interactions through my, my personal values, but also making sure I'm in an environment that just reinforces that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The more I get to know you, the more I, I see you as a boundary spanner yeah. because of your background, which is so distinctive. And so let me ask you this question. Each person is a bundle of demographics and psychographics and yours are different than mine and ours are different from the next person. But a lot of us, we develop bias and prejudice and discriminating thoughts and patterns based on acquired socialization, and they link back to demographics. And they link back to cultural attributes and things like that. What advice would you give to people to help them lay that down? Because you're a person that seems to live above demographics and Mm -hmm. psychographics. You live on a plane, you operate on a plane, you interact on a plane that supersedes the demographics and the psychographics and the cultural attributes that that hang people up, that trip them up, that get in their way, that create divisions that are so unnecessary. You seem to live above those obstacles right Uh now because of your life experience. But how do you help others to do that same thing when (laughs) they, they haven't had that kind of experience that you've had? Yeah, I think it takes real intentionality. Um, yeah. there's, a, there's a couple of things I'd say. I'd say the first thing is to educate yourself, be curious, go into situations with an open heart and an open mind. So it's really preparing yourself to live in that way and to show up in that way. The other thing that I just say is, you know, you're not responsible for your first thought, but you are responsible for your second thought and your first action. And so the power lies between your first thought and your first action. And that just demonstrates to me that whether we like it or not, we are riddled with 
bias. <laughs> we are. We are. But it's about trying to make it more conscious. And so therefore, we are going to get it wrong. But it's about what I initially said, which I think is about going into things with an open heart and with an open mind and the curiosity. And I think it takes quite a lot of courage because I often trip myself up and I often use clumsy language. But I think it's about having the humility to put your hands up and say, I got it wrong. And so learning is not just through the classic, I'm going to read a book and learn about something. Learning is also about being courageous and to have courageous conversation and to be okay when you get it wrong and not to be defensive when you get it wrong. And so I'd say I'm definitely a work in progress, but I think I, I'm not so afraid of failure because I kind of know where I came from, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I want to summarize that for listeners. So listeners, you've got to pay attention to what you just heard from Nelson, because what he's saying is we're all dripping with bias. But real, true learning, perhaps the most important kind of learning, as he said, it, it doesn't come from a book. It's taking what's unconscious and making it conscious. So take, finding the unconscious bias, making it conscious, and engaging in that self-examination, that is perhaps the most important learning that you can do. But you can't do that passively. It has to be intentional. It has to be deliberate. It has to be based on rigorous self-reflection. And Nelson, I can't thank you enough for just emphasizing that because that is the journey that we have to take. There's no other way to do it. It doesn't happen passively, does it? Absolutely not. It absolutely does not. And just a little bit of um, comparison in, in kind of what you just said and what I tend to see happening is, you know, I don't think diversity and inclusion and really being conscious about bias is something that you can just dip in and dip out of. It's not something that you can prioritize and reprioritize. It's just something that just has to become a way of being, but it has to, it requires for me courage and what you just described, which is intentionality. And if you'll uh, indulge me just for a second, I was having this conversation the other day about, you know, who are the leaders that inspire us the most? And one of the people that has really inspired me, and I really think stands head and shoulders above a lot of the world leaders around there is Jacinda Ardern, um, the New Zealand prime minister. It's really interesting because I think she's something like 42, 43 years old. And what she, <laughs> she's accomplished like in a very short period of time is, is really, really incredible. There was the tragic terrorist aftermath of the terrorist attacks that happened there was the volcano eruption that came through, the COVID-19 pandemic, all within as soon as she arrived into the seat. But it's interesting what she does when you talk about intentionality is she appoints the most diverse cabinet in New Zealand's history, right? You have great representation from Indigenous Marys. You have got women um, in, in the team. You've got representatives from the LGBTQ community. And I mention this because she intentionally does that in the middle of all of this tragedy and yeah. challenge, right? Yeah. And I yeah. find it ironic because what usually happens is when things are hard- You play it safe. You play it safe, yeah. right? You play yeah. it safe and it gets deprioritized. But yeah. actually, 
when things are hard, that is exactly the time when you need to be intentional, when you need to think about these really, really important topics. So I completely agree with everything that you said. I just wanted to bring a different kind of angle to that as well. I want to bring in another line of thinking on this too, though, Nelson. I had a conversation just the other day with a Fortune 500 CEO, and he said, Tim, my biggest need across my management population is critical thinking. It's critical thinking. He said, "We this is in short supply. And so it makes me think, it makes me connect to what you're saying, Nelson, because critical thinking at some point, critical thinking is about synthesis. It's about integration. It's about making connections. It's about creating variance. It's about divergent thinking. You got to bring that in first. That's the first requirement is you got to bring it in. As I like to say, the homogenization of thought is the enemy. We don't need an echo chamber. That's not going to help us. And so I love what you're saying because she brought in this diversity into her cabinet to help create the lateral thinking, the variance. Now, then the question becomes, and it is true, though, that she's creating a potential challenge for herself because the question is, can we harness the differences, mm. right? Because you bring in the differences and you may find that you can't harness the differences and that you balkanize, you tribalize, you descend into difference and it becomes irreconcilable. And then you can't accomplish anything. And so you're at a stalemate, right? It's loggerheads. And we don't want that. We're trying, what are we trying to do? We're trying to solve problems. We're trying to create solutions. We're trying to create a deeply inclusive environment where everyone feels and knows that they do belong. So Nelson, let's talk about, okay, you bring in the difference which is compositional. So you got the differences represented. Okay, now we have the task of harnessing the differences. Let's talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know what, Tim? Who wants the hassle <laughs> of divergent perspectives? Because it feels really hard, right? Yeah. It feels like there's a lot of friction taking place. Who doesn't want to be surrounded by like-minded people where we have similar perspectives. Um, we do a lot yeah. of nodding. It just feels good, right? Yeah, it's, it seems easier. Totally, but, but, but guess what? Easy doesn't equate to performance. No, it doesn't. Right. You're dead on. Easy doesn't equate to performance. Performance requires the hard work of actually diverse, divergent perspectives being brought to the table. And there are real consequences of uh, not doing that. And I, I'd love to share a story. Um, I was, um, I don't know if you've read Rebel Ideas from um, Matthew Said, Tim. I have not. No, well, for any of your listeners that are interested in the power of diverse and divergent teams and perspectives, um, this is the book for you. But he, he, um, he tells a story, it's the era of the late 1950s, early 1960s, 
the golden era of travel, Tim, where you've got Concord and, and Pan Am. And there's a gentleman called David Bloom. And David Bloom is this ambitious product development director working for a luggage company. And he's on a business trip and he, he takes a breather and he looks around, I think it's at the airport. And what he notices is he sees all of these passengers struggling and pulling these suitcases from point <laughs> A to point B. So you're in yeah. the middle of this golden era of luxury, but you've got these people absolutely struggling. And um, he looks around him and he, he has this sort of eureka moment and he goes, huh, why wouldn't we put wheels on the bottom of these suitcases so that people can glide luxuriously with yeah. the <laughs> with their, right. with their luggage, right? Yeah. So he is so excited, he's so psyched. He's like, this is the one, this is the game changer. So he gets a he immediately gets some time with the board of directors of the company and he presents this incredible idea that's going to be transformational. And the response he gets is quite lukewarm at best. <laughs> because they're thinking, why on earth would anyone want something as ghastly as wheels on the bottom of these suitcases? And I think it was an, and they missed out, right? And when we, we you know, decades later, we know who was, the, who was on the right side of history in that room. But I think it gives us a lesson here, right? And the lesson is, is that here you've got executives who, in theory, are in the best position to see the bigger picture. They're in the best position to look forward and see the innovation. But what happened was they were trapped in this paradigm of unwieldy luggage and they couldn't go beyond it. They couldn't envision a world where there would be wheels in the bottom of suitcases. Even though if you look around, the need is so obvious and acute. Absolutely. Isn't that strange? It's so, so it's it's willful blindness. Like, how can this be? Yeah, absolutely. You become prisoners in your own paradigm, right? And you can just imagine this was proliferated by the fact of what we're just talking about, which was the lack of diversity and lack of divergent perspectives. And so there is a very real risk that management teams and organizations are missing out on obvious opportunities and obvious innovation because homogeneity is easy. It feels easy. It's really not, it's uh, much easier to just accept nodding heads, but to navigate what you just said, those difficult divergent specs, it really truly requires intentionality again and inclusive leadership. Mm -hmm. Like that's where the inclusive leader really steps up to be able to harness those perspectives. So as we think about that, do you have any other advice on how to harness though? Because I think this is where, Nelson, so many organizations are struggling. They make great strides to diversify their organizations and yet they're no more inclusive as a result. They're not harnessing the differences one of the things that, that I see is if you watch people, if they naturally self-segregate based on natural affinity groups and they keep doing that again and again and again, you know you're not getting there. And so one of the things that I see and I say is that we are, 
and yet we're congratulating ourselves on becoming more diverse, but it's an uncritical celebration and it's a premature celebration. We really haven't learned to integrate and to use the full power of the differences that we have. So we're not all the way there. And I see a lot of organizations that are hitting the wall here. And as you said early in the conversation, it's not just about increasing awareness and appreciation and understanding of differences. You have to have an open mind and an open heart. And then we start to see the power. But until then, we don't get there. And I see so many organizations that are on a compliance track and they go to great effort to increase the awareness and the understanding of differences, but then they reach this point of diminishing returns and they're not making any more progress. They're stuck. Have you seen this? I have. I have. And this is such a fascinating topic. The first thing that I'd just say is, I think what the Black Lives Movement, Black Lives Matter movement has shown us, what COVID has shown us is there's a new vocabulary for leadership. And that new vocabulary is situational humility, it's empathy, it's vulnerability, it's courage. Those are the leaders that are standing shoulders above others. And those are the leaders that are showing true inclusive leadership. But one of the things that I'd just say is what organizations need to do is recognize that they're trying to make behavior change, right? Mm -hmm. They're trying to yeah. make cultural change. And I want to remind everybody that a behavior is not a goal or an intention. A behavior is an observable action. And the way behaviors become habits is when you repeat it and when you repeat it intentionally. And you start to get the compounding effects. So That's the right. compounding effects of repeatable behavior becomes habits of habits then becomes norms, which then becomes the culture of the organization. But we're all human beings and we don't like to uh, multitask. So what I would always say is start with the one thing and do that really, really well and do that in a repeated way. And so I could list a host of things that organizations and managers and leaders could do. Some of them might be, I think it's about the conversation. So how do you ensure that inclusion and diversity is part and parcel of the conversation regularly within team meetings. How do you make sure if you don't have the diversity in your team that you're intentionally inviting outside perspectives to bring that outside perspective? Mm -hmm. How can you make sure that you are replacing skepticism with curiosity, deep mm -hmm. intellectual curiosity? How can, and last and last, how can you make sure that you're respecting the different thinking styles within your teams? Because you'll have some people, I know we had this conversation the other day, Tim, you'll have some people who are more introverted thinking, have more yeah. introverted thinking styles and more extroverted thinking styles. But um, what tends to happen is um, you default to brainstorming and then 80% of the ideas are coming from 20% of the people sure. in the room. Yeah. Right. Those who like to process publicly and verbally. 100%. Yeah. And so therefore, can you not be intentional about 
balancing rightstorming and brainstorming to make sure you're getting all perspectives heard. And, and I think that's what it's about. You know, at the end of the day, I think what people want to feel is they want to feel seen. They want to feel heard. They want to feel recognized for the contributions that they're making. And they want to be celebrated for the unique people that they are. Mm -hmm. Right. That is really what we're talking about. Every right? person wants that. Every single person wants that. And we've all been in situations where we felt excluded. We know what it means to be excluded. Every single individual knows what it feels to be excluded. Some have experienced that more than others, but we all have that feeling. Let's talk about that for just a minute. Mm. If you wouldn't mind, Nelson, given your background and the diversity that you represent, can you just say a word about experiences where you felt motivated or you felt compelled to hide your difference or your differences because i think you've had experiences like that i have i have Can you say a little bit about that yeah absolutely growing up i was often one of the only people a person of color in the room and that really translated from my primary school through to my secondary school and into the world of work and you know tim I became a master of blending in. <laughs> I became the absolute master of blending in. My accent became less Kenyan, um, a little bit more polished. And I started to involve myself in hobbies and activities, which deep in my heart weren't the things that I wanted to be spending my time doing, right? And I was blending into society because I thought it's that compliance I was compliant. to a certain extent because it's expensive to be yourself. 100%, 100%. And, you know, in the world of work, um, very early on in my career, I, I remember what I do, Tim, is anytime there was a team meeting or a project meeting, I would go to that meeting really early and try and find the spot around the table where I could blend in, where I wasn't necessarily at the center of the conversation, at the heart, visibly, of the conversation. And that's because... You would be I, that deliberate about it? Yeah, I did. Absolutely, I was. I didn't want to blend in. I didn't want to appear as threatening or anything like that. And that became normalized for me, right? And I thought that that's what I needed to do to, to get on here. Um, well, anyway, you know, a good few weeks in, I was then, I was then started to be invited to a different meeting. And um, the person that was chairing that meeting was what I can only describe as um, a tall, gregarious, authentic Black Caribbean man who happened to be the managing director um, within the organization. And I think it was on meeting two or three where I think he must have noticed this because he said he hollered at me in his Caribbean accent. He said, Nelson, I've saved this seat for you next to me. <laughs> right here, right here. <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I got up, walked <laughs> gingerly towards him. And every meeting, he saved that seat next to me. And, and what happened to him is... I recognized that I was contributing more to the discussion. I recognized that my voice started to matter more. And it was through that gesture of inviting me to the table, frankly, mm -hmm. inviting me to the table. And I'd observe 
this chap, this MD, and he was what you saw was what you got. Right? He he wasn't blending into some kind of corporate image of what he thought he needed to be. He was being yeah. his true, full, authentic self. And I can't imagine it was easy for him to do that. And he was giving you permission Absolutely. and inviting you and clearing the path for you, right? Absolutely, he was. He was giving me, you, I, I, you've said it perfectly, which he was consciously and subliminally at the same time, giving me permission to contribute in the way that I could best contribute and who I was. You know, that year I was the highest performing analyst within the entire division. And that was a real transformation because of the way I was able to show up because I felt seen, I felt heard, recognized for my contributions. And it's an incredible feeling, but there's a valuable lesson for me there. It sounds like a, a crucial turning point in life uh-huh. Not just professional life, but in life. Absolutely. And so then the attempts to blend in are gone. Yeah. Is that what happened? Was it that big of a juncture of a turning point in your life? It was a huge juncture. In my, I, I would say that was the moment where I knew I was different, but I embraced that difference. And I did it in an unforgiving way and that I was always going to be respectful and humble, but I was always going to try to be me. And I'm a human, I, I slip up sometimes, but I'd say consistently I've tried to not compromise that because I see the power of it, but I also recognize the challenges in trying to achieve that and do that. And, and hence I do the work that I do, right? You know, the work, I feel very privileged to be in a position, it's hard work, <laughs> but I also feel very privileged to be in a position where I can try and make the difference for others so that they can be more of themselves at work. And, you know, when you think about the amount of time that you spend at work, it's exhausting hiding who you are. It is absolutely exhausting hiding who you are. Yeah. Nelson, one thing that you've taught me in the time that I've known you, and I think it summarizes much of what we talked about today, and that is that you exude, you demonstrate a great affection for humanity. And because of that, it's impossible to dislike you. And I mean that sincerely. You teach people through your modeling behavior how to interact and as I said at the beginning, you embrace the differences that we have and we appreciate the differences, but you operate on a level that supersedes the bias and the prejudice that we all are dripping with, right? And I just appreciate that about you because that's what you've taught me is, and then second to that is with that affection comes this very determined persistent intentionality. You've got to be present. You've got to be thinking about what you're doing in the moment, the way you're interacting, and then it's got to be, you got to do it again and you got to do it again and you got to be consistent, right? And in the course of doing that, you're going to take some shots and people are going to misbehave along the way and they're going to be offensive and they're going to say and do the wrong things 
but you're also going to extend grace. You're going to be forgiving. See, I think that you have come to mastery in some of these areas that we all need to learn. And yes, we do things at an institutional level to try to shift and transform our cultures. But ultimately, much of what you've shared with us today demonstrates, I think, Nelson, that it's a process of self-discovery. You have to learn many of these things based on your own journey, don't you? You absolutely do. And um, I have definitely been on multiple occasions been through a journey of self-discovery because you learn new things about yourself. I see our lives as chapters and every chapter brings a new thing to learn and discover about yourself. And, you know, once I recognize that, I realize that, you know, something that my mom says is that whether it's a good thing or, or a bad thing, this too shall pass. And I think that's really profound because it just reminds you to go again. It reminds you to go again because, yeah, I've had a lot of no's <laughs> in my yeah. life. I've yeah. had a lot of no's in my life. But the yeses happened to have been very big yeses. But before we hit the yes, there was lots of no's. And so I think reminding myself that this too shall pass and reminds me to A, not give up, but also not to settle as well right? It's easy to get comfortable and get surprised. And so I, I agree with you. It's a continuous journey of self-discovery, but you have to do it wherever you get to in life with an open heart and an open mind and yeah. be okay that you're not always right and mm -hmm. learn from it. Mm -hmm. But thank you so much for what you said. I, I really, really appreciate it. Well, I'm so appreciative of you spending some time and doing this episode, I think the other way that I would summarize it is that we talk about resilience and how important resilience is in life overall, but there's a category of resilience that you're really communicating here. It's, I don't know what we would call it, maybe interpersonal resilience, but what I've noticed is that in spite of your, uh, the adversity and the challenges that you've had, you overcome those, you taste the bitter, but you're not bitter. The, the thing that I see in you is you don't have resentment or bitterness, even though that would be justifiable. You don't carry that with you, Nelson. And that is an incredible thing because that allows you to be a cultural ambassador in such a, a much more powerful way. You're not bringing baggage and uh, resentment and bitterness with you. So I'm just telling you that comes through so clearly and so powerfully. And um, thank you for that. Thank you. And I hope that all of the listeners can see that because that is a lesson. That's where we have to go. We have to taste the bitter without becoming bitter. We have to go forward with kind of interpersonal resilience that allows us, as you've said, to harness the differences in an amazing way. So I really appreciate this time that we've had together in incredible insights, just thank, incredible. Thank you, Tim. And I appreciate you and everything that you're doing. It's hard work that we've got in front of us. And you know, I look up to the work that you're doing and thank you. And, and thank you for having me here today. Ah, it's our pleasure. Thank you.
Thanks for joining me today on the Culture by Design podcast. Be sure to subscribe and listen to new episodes every week. And if you'd like to see more of the work we're doing, go to leaderfactor.com. 